Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are continuing in our series through the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 12, verse 1, and we will pick up there in a moment. Uh, If you were with us last week, you know that we unpacked chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, which are, I would argue, the centerpiece of the book. Uh, Chapters 4 and 5 are the centering vision of, of Revelation. And it's when John um, looks into, is kind of ushered into this heavenly uh, place, and what he sees is uh, the Creator God and the Lamb who was slain on the throne of heaven uh, being worshipped. They're being worshipped by um, creation. They're being worshipped by the people of God. They're being worshipped by hundreds uh, of millions of angels. And, and this uh, stunning vision that we get reveals to us that God is the true king of the universe. He is the only one worthy of worship. He is the center. But simply by revealing this vision, there's already been a great tension that's been created in the book. It highlights a tension that now must be addressed in the rest of the book. If God is on the throne, in the center of the universe, then it means that his kingdom can and must extend one day to all of creation. That king and the kingdom that he brings will not stay confined. It will one day spread into all of creation, uh, which means... That sooner or later, every false kingdom and all evil must be judged and removed from creation in order for the kingdom of God to come in full. It's the only way that the kingdom of God can come in full. There can't be evil in the kingdom. And the kingdom of God it must one day come on earth as it is in Heaven. And so uh, in chapter 5, we get introduced to the sealed scroll that's in the right hands of God, if you were here last week. Um, and this scroll, by Old Testament accounts, is most likely the message or the means by which God's kingdom will come in full to the earth. And so there was this tension last week of, hey, who is worthy to open this scroll? Uh, Who is worthy to bring God's kingdom in full on the earth, judging and removing all evil and idolatry and pain and death in order to clear the way for the kingdom of God? Who can usher in this eternal age? And the answer that we get from chapter 5 is that it's only the lamb who was slain. It's only God himself come in the person of Jesus who has the divine authority 
to open the scroll and set these events in motion. And so what happens as chapter 5 ends, where we ended last week, and then chapter 6 begins, the Lamb does in fact begin breaking the seals and clearing the ground for the kingdom of God to come in full on the earth. And so from chapter 6 onward, all the way up to chapters 18 through 20, near the end of the book, the vast majority of the book of Revelation is simply following this series of seven seals being broken. But breaking seven seals would be far too simple for the book of Revelation. So instead, what happens is that six seals are broken, and within the seventh seal, or between the sixth and seventh, there are seven trumpets and a mini-scroll within the scroll, followed by seven signs, which help explain the mini-scroll and the trumpets, and then within the seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls of wrath poured out on the earth. How is that for confusing? But the bowls appear to be hidden within the the seventh trumpet, and, and the trumpets all apparently were hidden within the seventh seal, and then all three of these series of seven culminate and end in the exact same event, which is the day of the Lord, or or this final act of judgment on creation, which of course the prophets all talked about in the Old Testament. It's God's final act of judgment on the evil of this world. Uh, And so this is the vast majority of the book of Revelation, is this very intense and and kind of confusing narrative that that spirals and seems to address the same events over and over again from different perspectives, and, and it's a bit hard to unravel. So as we step into this section of the book, one of the questions is like, well, where do we start? Like, how do you start unpacking all of these things and this uh, wild imagery that we don't understand. It it spirals through time instead of working uh, from start to finish. It uses images and metaphors from the Old Testament that we aren't very familiar with as uh, New Testament uh, Christians. We we don't have the same framework. And so um, it's it's for that reason and, and several others that the book of Revelation can be so confusing and even dangerous. Um, but, but we have to jump in here into this giant middle section and these series of things that are happening. Uh, we have to start somewhere. And so what I want us to do this morning is pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. And for context, just within these kind of spiraling series of sevens, um, the, the chapter 12 is one of the signs or symbols that gives meaning to the rest of the book. So remember there was a section that just had seven signs or symbols explaining other things in the book of Revelation. This is one of them. So this is chapter 12, verse 1. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So pause real quick. If you've been with us over the last three weeks as we've been talking about the book of Revelation, What does 12 and its multiples stand for? God's people. It's symbolic of the people of God. Anytime you see 12 or its multiples in the book of Revelation, 
So this stands for the people of God. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will, quote, rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Who is that? Who is this uh, in the language of the Old Testament? The ruler who would come, the Lion of Judah, who would rule the nations with an iron scepter. Who is that? Jesus. The Messiah, the Anointed One. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne, which some would say is an an allusion or a a reference to his ascension. He's on the throne, as we saw in chapters 4 and 5, with God. Um, Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time times a time and a half out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Before we continue, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for um, this this vision, uh, for these um, for these words, for these visions that you gave to John, uh, and I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds, uh, and that they would help us see and experience you more clearly, to understand the world that we live in, uh, and the world that you are going to bring about in the future. In Jesus' name, Amen. So as you're reading through the book of Revelation, this chapter is just one sign or symbol that helps give meaning to the rest of the book. It's one of the keys to understanding 
what we're reading about in Revelation. And, and it doesn't fit at all chronologically between like the trumpets and the seals and the bowls and everything else that kind of has this flow in the chapter. It's more like an interlude or a break from this very intense narrative that spans those 14 chapters. So as you're reading through every once in a while, they have these these breaks or these visions that then help give insight to the rest of the book. Uh, And notice, uh, just kind of as an aside in your mind, that if you don't recognize the genre of revelation as apocalyptic literature, rich with uh, symbols, then you're already completely lost. If you read this literally, as I did when I first picked up the book of Revelation, then you're expecting a literal dragon and a flying woman and stars falling out of the sky. Are you with me? And, and, And because those things have not literally happened on earth, then you are forced to conclude that everything you're reading is in the future. Does that make sense? That's why we started week one just talking about what is apocalyptic literature and how does that affect the way you interpret what you're reading. It's rich with uh, symbology, or symbology, I don't know if that's a word. It's rich with symbols that have a deeper meaning behind them, right? And so if you get the genre, then you can approach something like this from a totally different point of view, if you read it literally, and some people pride themselves on it. Oh, you oh, you think it's symbols. I read the Bible literally. Have you encountered that before? Like, oh, well, I'm, I take it the most seriously because I read it literally. Well, well, that's not how Revelation is meant to be read. And if you read it literally, you are forced to put the entire book of Revelation at, as something that will unfold in the future because none of this has literally happened but they're symbols for for a deeper reality that is true. So in the early chapters of Revelation, uh, Jesus spoke to the churches by the Spirit, and he said over and over again to each church that he goes through, he ends uh, his section to each church by saying, to the one who is victorious. Hey, you're under persecution from the Romans, you're struggling, you're apathetic, whatever it is, but to the one who is victorious... And then he fills in the blank. You'll receive eternal life. You'll receive this from me. You'll be part of the kingdom. To the one who's victorious, to the one who's victorious, to the one who's victorious. Then we get an image of Jesus on the throne, which sets the scene for all of the tension that's going to unfold as he takes on the false powers of this world. And, And so what the rest of the book is going to help answer from chapter 6 forward, is, hey, what's the true nature of this battle? And what does it look like for me, for, for we, for us, the church, to be victorious? What's the nature of the battle, and how should I be victorious? What does that mean? The rest of the book is going to answer that. And so what chapter 12 reveals is that the battle of Revelation, in fact, the battle of all of Scripture, of all of creation, is actually a cosmic battle between the dragon, the great serpent, the enemy, the the Satan, as it says in Scripture, and God himself. Now, Satan would destroy God if he could. That's impossible. He can't, and so he goes for the next best thing. 
He attempts to destroy Jesus as Jesus is stepping into creation. As one of the members of the Trinity is putting on flesh and blood and coming into creation, Satan attempts to, to destroy him. But that didn't work either, according to chapter 12. Then it says, the dragon was enraged at the woman, who's likely symbolic for the people of God, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Everything else in the book of Revelation is this battle playing itself out to its final conclusion. And there are human beings on both sides of this battle. There are human beings who are doing the will of uh, the Satan, the enemy, and there are human beings doing the will of God. And, and so on a surface level, what it looks like from our eyes and from maybe a secular historical perspective is that there's just human beings persecuting and killing human beings. The Roman Empire is out to persecute, hunt down, and kill Christians. Human beings killing human beings for political reasons. But what Revelation is doing is it's pulling back the curtain and saying, actually, it's way deeper than that. It's way more profound than that. It's way more complicated than that. What's going on behind the scenes is something much bigger and much grander than what meets the eye. And so as the curtain is being pulled back, we see a deeper reality behind the scenes. And we discover, and and what we discover is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And if that's true, then our fitting response, according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is to, quote, take your stand against the devil's schemes. When you look out your window, you think your enemy is that legion of Roman soldiers that's coming to arrest you. Nope, that is not your real enemy. There's something going on behind the scenes that has put them in motion, that has put them at your doorstep. Revelation places our daily struggle and the tension and evil of this world in light of the greater cosmic battle that is playing itself out all around us, the grand battle of good and evil, or more specifically, the battle between God and the Satan. With the rebellious and unbelieving world, often unknowingly, doing the will of Satan and the faithful witnesses of God carrying out the will of God. How can we explain why so much of the world is hostile to Christianity? Why Christians today are the most persecuted people group on the planet? Well, according to Revelation, it's because there's a lot more playing out here than meets the eye. If the world hates you, Jesus says, remember that it hated me first. Why? 
Well, because it's under the sway, under the influence of our enemy who is waging war against God and his people, and, and he often uses human actors to do it. This explains why life is the way that it is. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. This is the world that you were born into. This is the nature of the battle that we live and breathe day in and day out. And so uh, part of what Revelation does is wake up the apathetic. It is wake up the blind to the truer reality that lurks behind the scenes, to the battle that we are engaged in. But it does more than that. It's not simply a lifting of the veil and saying, hey, wake up. There's a bigger battle that you're caught in the middle of. Revelation is also designed to show us how to be victorious in this battle. How do we overcome? How do we walk in victory? First, you have to understand the true nature of the battle that you're fighting. But then you you actually have to see what it looks like to be victorious. And so the book of Revelation has these stunning pictures sprinkled throughout of victory for the people of God, right in the middle of a dark and oppressive and corrupt and broken world, right in the middle of trials and tribulations. God's people can overcome and be victorious by remaining faithful to him. We get these pictures of the church resisting evil, resisting empire in order to follow the Lamb into the new heavens and the new earth. And chapter 7 is just one of those visions. So you can turn there with me if you want to, uh, but I, I just want us to see one glimpse of victory that's contained uh, in in the midst of a dark and and evil age. And so chapter 7, I'm going to kind of sum some of it up, but chapter 7 starts with an image of an angel placing a seal on on the foreheads of the faithful people of God, which made a lot more sense in the first century world than it does in our world. But the, the angel is marking them out, setting them apart as those who were victorious. And verse 4 says this, John says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And from here, it's going to go down the list, 12,000 from each tribe. And it's going to read just like a census from the Old Testament, if you've read through the Old Testament before. Now remember the symbolism in apocalyptic literature. What does 12 and its multiples stand for? the people of God, okay? So it's symbolic representative of the people of God. Do you remember from week one what a thousand stands for in apocalyptic literature? It's okay. It was a few weeks ago. It means a lot or often a long time, just like, like a, a mega, like just a mega, like just a lot of whatever it is, okay? And so you've got 12 tribes, each with 12,000, This is what John hears. 
Then I heard an announcement. About twelves and twelve thousands, which means a lot of the people of God. How many are going to be there when he spins around to look? Well, we could easily conclude that it's exactly 144,000. Because we live in the Western world, and we are very literal, and we would never, ever use a number as a symbol or as an adjective. That is nonsensical to us. But check this out. If you look down at verse 9, in verse 4, John hears the announcement about the people of God. Verse 9, he turns to look and see the people of God. And what he sees is very different than what he hears. Verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures from chapters 4 and 5. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, out of the oppression, out of the trials, out of the dark age that we live in. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is victory. It's the people of God from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, from every ethnicity, all coming together in the eternal age. At the banquet table of the Lamb. And and chapter 7 is just one glimpse of this victory. What does it look like to be victorious in the midst of an evil age? They have come through the great trials and tribulations of this life. They've come through the horrible clash of kingdoms that we now live in and the spiritual warfare which plays itself out all around us. And they came through and they were victorious. How? According to this passage, they knew that salvation comes from God alone. They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb 
They remained faithful to him through trials and tribulations, and now they will inherit the eternal age to come. This is the plot line of the book of Revelation. It's a prophetic, apocalyptic letter meant to challenge and inspire the people of God toward one single aim. Following the Lamb into new creation. Following the Lamb into the new heavens and the new earth. Be victorious in the battle by remaining faithful to Jesus despite all opposition and pressure to the contrary, resisting every scheme of the enemy, resisting every earthly empire. You you do that. You follow the lamb through those trials and temptations and you will inherit the kingdom of God. And, And we need to hear this message. This is as relevant to us as it was to them. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, Too often we are thick-skinned to the Spirit's breeze, dull-eared to the heaven-declared glory of God. Is there no vision that can open our eyes to the life of redemption in which we are immersed by Christ's covenant? Is there no trumpet that can wake us up to the intricacies of grace? the profundities of peace, the repeated and unrepeated instances of love that are under and around and over us. For me and for, and for many, Revelation has done it. This is the point of the book. Wake up. Shake off your apathy. Grasp hold of reality as it actually is. Understand what is unfolding around you. Resist evil. Resist empire. Follow Jesus. Stay faithful and you will inherit the kingdom. And as I think about my own life, even over the course of these last few weeks, I I see the incredible relevance of this lesson. Because most days, I feel the tension of spiritual warfare. I hear the voice of the accuser, who according to Revelation, never stops accusing God's people day and night. I actually feel that. Uh, The enemy still brings accusations against me for sexual sin that happened 10, 15, even 20 years ago. I hear that voice of accusation. Hey, remember last year? Hey, remember last night when you were short with your wife? Do you, do you really think you can be a pastor? Do you really think you're holy? Do you really think you're not Christ-like? You're not loving? You shouldn't be a pastor. You think you're filled with the Spirit? I think you're full of stuff I can't say in church. 
I have to face those voices, silence those voices, resist those accusations and temptations, and so do you. Because I'm a pastor, I'm in a unique position to see what many of you are up against spiritually. It's kind of a bird's eye view over the community. And, and I get involved in a lot of different things. Um, so it's not uncommon to pray with people who, who are being oppressed by the demonic. It, it's not uncommon to pray with people who have been shaped. Their lives have been shaped by lies of the enemy. That they're convinced are true. So they grip on and, and it shapes their walk. It shapes who they are. I mean, a unique position to see people who compromise and just walk away. Walk away from their faith. They succumb to the cynicism and they reject Jesus. I I get to see all of that. And my personal experience and the experience of countless others seems to line up perfectly with chapter 12 and this battle that Scripture says is unfolding all around us. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. We see the reality of our enemy at work powerfully in the world, waging war against God and his people, the most persecuted people group on the planet, against the church and her offspring. We, we see that. We know that. Some of us know it all too well. Some of you walked in here this morning more aware of the darkness, more aware of the tension, more aware of the accusations, more aware of our enemy than you are of God himself. That's how real this battle is to some of you. But the message of Revelation is also a call to hope. It's a battle drum that beats with a message of victory. The enemy is at work, true enough, but we rejoice in the midst of it because we know his time is short. If I can be honest with you, there are times when I wish I wasn't in ministry. The spiritual warfare, the burdens you carry, the messiness of it, the weight of it, There are times when I think to myself, wow, what would it be like to just work in insurance or something? Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Like, what would it be like? I was a lawyer before. What would it be like to go back to the law, like to be the lawyer again? What would it look like to be a teacher? What would it look like to do this this other stuff? And I won't uh, because deep down I, I love what I do. 
and we're fresh off an amazing men's retreat, and, and I'm, I feel good today, okay? I'm, I'm not actually going to quit. I, I have this sense of calling to be where I am. So I'm not going anywhere. I, I won't quit, but there are times, days, seasons, sometimes years when I feel worn down. When following Jesus begins to feel so heavy and costly, when the dominion of darkness seems to be claiming more victories than it is entitled to. But do you know what I do when I'm in those valleys? I read the book of Revelation and I remember. I remember the battle that we're in. I remember that Satan's time is short. I remember that there is a new age on the horizon and that those who persevere, who are victorious, will stand in that place. And I can look backwards and sideways and through the book of Revelation and see this compelling picture of a a victorious church standing firm, faithful to Jesus against the forces of darkness in this world. I remember what it looks like to overcome. Chapter 12, which we started with, uh, verse 11 says this. It says, we have overcome, this is the words of the victorious, we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, and the power of our testimony. Amid all accusation, amid all resistance and oppression, amid all spiritual warfare, in the midst of evil, in the face of every worldly empire, of every worldly temptation, we stand firm in the blood of Christ, and in the power of our testimony. And our testimony is this. Jesus is the Lamb upon the throne. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. And one day He will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation is a call for the church to be victorious. Let's pray.